0: Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the audio edition of the Weekly Roundup, where we examine some of the key headlines and developments pertaining to the asset and wealth management industry across Singapore, Hong Kong, and mainland China. In this episode, we are looking at the week of April 12 through 16, and some of the major developments that happened within that period. So let's dive in. Starting this week with a broad look across the Asia-Pacific region, a survey from HSBC Asset Management, the asset management arm of the British Bank, has shed light on the sustainable investing habits of investors across China, Hong Kong, Singapore and the United Kingdom. The survey draws on responses from 250 investors with net investable assets of at least $250,000 and also from 400 advisors, 100 from each market, with average assets under advice of between 100 million to 500 million US dollars. The findings for Asia show the following. An average of 84% of investors believe that ESG issues are central to managing their investments, with China leading the response rate with 89%, though advisors state that only 50% of their clients See ESG investments as important. Additionally, only an average of 26% of investors' investments explicitly consider ESG factors, and advisors state that nearly 60% of investors do not know how to approach ESG investing. With regards to the barriers to ESG investing, 49% of investors believe a lack of suitable sustainable products is the biggest impediment to ESG investing whilst 37% report not wanting to limit the scope of their investments, and 34% cited high costs of ESG investments. On the advisor side, 60% pointed to a shortage of suitable products as the biggest barrier, and 57% cited a lack of client demand as the largest barriers to ESG investment. On the aspects of ESG, which investors and advisors find important, Investors ranked sustainability, environmental impact, and climate change as the top three factors, with 62%, 57%, and 52% responding accordingly, respectively. Advisors ranked environmental impact, 77%, climate change, 66%, and clean or renewable energy, 65%, as their top three ESG issues. In terms of investments approach... Multi-asset investing was the most popular method among investors in Hong Kong and Singapore, with 53% and 49% respectively choosing this option, whilst Chinese investors ranked thematic funds as their preferred ESG investment vehicle, with 50% utilizing this method. Regarding the future of ESG investment, investors and advisors alike believe that products aligning with investors' risk and return objectives A wider range of investment vehicles and strategies, more government incentives, and better information on investment performance and ESG issues are key drivers for promoting ESG investment. Additionally, 50% of investors across the three Asian markets believe that their investment portfolios will comprise 100% sustainable investments in the next three to five years, against 34% for UK investors. Additionally, 70% of investors in China believe that the COVID-19 pandemic has increased their awareness of ESG investing, along with 68% of investors in Singapore and 54% of investors in Hong Kong. Now for Singapore. Standard Chartered, a British bank, has partnered with Better Tradeoff, a fintech company. To launch a financial planning app for retail and high net worth individuals in Singapore, as reported by CityWire Asia. The Goals Planner app enables users to track and plan their financial goal via a selection of functions relevant to a user's wealth and life stage. Standard Chartered cited the impact of COVID 19 and subsequent disruptions as leading to increased interest in financial planning among customers and that the Goals Planner allows users to plan out key milestones and savings and investment targets to make data-led decisions around their wealth planning. The launch of Goals Planner follows DBS's increased focus on digital advisory services to its customers, as covered in a previous episode, and factors into a broader trend towards digital services and platforms that asset and wealth managers across APAC are pursuing and which COVID-19 has accelerated. Moving on, following Singapore's budget announcement in February 2021, and specifically a statement from then-Deputy Prime Minister Heng Sui Kyat that, quote, there is scope to further review Singapore's wealth taxes, and quote, a tax partner at Grant Thornton Singapore, a global accounting network of firms, has stated that they believe there is unlikely to be a change in Singapore's lack of wealth tax, as reported by Asian private banker. Adrian Shum, the tax partner in question, stated that the absence of a wealth tax and stability were Singapore's two key propositions to high net worth individuals and wealthy families, noting that estate taxes were repealed back in 2008. The conversation around wealth taxes comes against the backdrop of the economic and fiscal impact of COVID-19 and steps other countries have taken to shore up their accounts in its wake. Argentina, for instance, instituted a levy on millionaires in December 2020, and discussion has also carried on in Britain as to whether a one-off tax or levy could aid in a post-COVID-19 recovery. The message from Grant Thornton echoes earlier statements from BDO, another accounting network firm, which urged Singapore's policymakers to incorporate tax breaks and other forms of support for the wealth management industry in the 2021 budget stating that such strengthening was, quote, low-hanging fruit, end quote, and a key driver of recovery. As noted in an earlier episode, Singapore has been attracting regional APAC wealth, with deposits at Singapore's financial institutions for residents outside of Singapore growing 20% over 2020, to reach $64.2 Singapore dollars in January 2021 and the number of singapore residents whose total assets exceeded 30 million us dollars reached over 3700 in 2020 up 10% from the year before whether the talk of a wealth tax or levy deters the flow of this wealth over 2021 remains to be seen next up following their agreement with leapfrog investments in march Tomasek, a singaporean sovereign wealth fund has partnered with blackrock the world's largest asset manager, to establish a series of funds focused on decarbonization, with a joint $600 million in seed capital contributed among the two parties, as reported by CityWire Asia. The first fund has a target fundraising goal of $1 billion and will leverage the private equity expertise of Tomasek and BlackRock to find investment opportunities in the late venture capital and early private equity stage and manage the investment portfolios. This is somewhat interesting, as Tomasek had stated earlier that it is looking to shift away from the traditional private equity base of ESG investments, as it believes more investors are looking to engage in impact investing, as covered in a previous episode. It further demonstrates the commitment to green and sustainable finance that Singapore's institutions are undertaking, and builds on BlackRock's efforts in this area as well following the asset manager's signing of the net zero asset managers initiative. It also follows the partnership between the two financial institutions after they established a bank wealth management joint venture with China Construction Bank in China back in August 2020, and Tomasek boosting its stake in BlackRock to 3.9% after an additional 3.5 billion US dollar investment back in the second quarter of 2020. moving up to hong kong fund selector asia reports that the bank of montreal a canadian bank has offloaded its hong kong etfs to china amc following its decision to exit its asset and wealth management business in hong kong made in 2020. bmo has struggled to raise substantial assets among its seven hong kong listed etfs with total assets amounting to under 400 million us dollars in september 2020. This reflects wider issues for asset managers operating in Hong Kong's ETF space, which has a significant bias towards China. BMO also offloaded its private banking businesses in Singapore and Hong Kong to J. Safra Saracen, a Swiss wealth manager, earlier this year, as it retreated from APAC entirely. Staying with developments in Hong Kong's ETF space, Ignites Asia reports that, having slashed fees for its flagship China A-share fund in Hong Kong, from 0.99% to 0.35% last month, BlackRock could ignite a wider ETF fee war. Whilst ETFs have generally struggled to gain substantial traction in Hong Kong, a potential reason for Vanguard, who cut fees to its five Hong Kong ETFs, withdrawing from the market and being unable to find a manager to take over their ETFs in the territory, as covered in a previous episode, Industry specialists believe that the lowering of fees could stimulate investor interest, which, if this comes to pass, could spark a fee war among other ETF providers. BlackRock's main competitor in the Hong Kong ETF space, CSOP, the Hong Kong subsidiary of China Southern Fund Management Company, has stated that institutional investors, the main buyers of ETFs in Hong Kong, would not be won over by a fee cut, and that they had, quote, no plans to lower the fees, end quote, of their flagship China A-share ETF. Next up, in addition to increasing investment and upping headcount across Asia-Pacific, HSBC will relocate four top executives to Hong Kong from London as the bank seeks to accelerate its strategic shift towards, or back to, Asia, as reported by the Financial Times. According to an internal memo, HSBC will relocate The Co-Head of Global Banking and Markets, the Chief Executive of Wealth and Personal Banking, Chief Executive of Global Commercial Banking, and the Head of Asset Management to Hong Kong in the second half of 2021. The FT notes that these relocations will result in the heads of the divisions which account for nearly all of HSBC's global revenue will be run out of Hong Kong. A decision that will no doubt have symbolic as well as practical implications. For both the bank and the region, as it undertakes the personnel moves and invests six billion U.S. dollars across China, Singapore, and Hong Kong. Moving on, with crypto asset market capitalization reaching two trillion U.S. dollars at time of recording, private banks in Hong Kong are increasingly permissive and receptive to their clients holding crypto assets in their accounts, as reported by Asian private banker. High net worth individuals across APAC. Including family offices, have directly traded crypto assets rather than invested in products which would give them exposure to the asset class. Now that crypto assets are growing in recognition as an asset class, increasing numbers of private banks in Hong Kong are reportedly allowing their clients to store crypto assets in private banking accounts. In Hong Kong, the first regulated crypto asset fund was launched by Arano Capital, the blockchain arm of Venture Smart Asia Limited. The first SFC approved digital asset manager in Hong Kong. The fund was launched in April 2020 and has raised 30 million US dollars from professional investors. The CIO of Arano Capital, Mr. Avanesh Aquila, stated that it was the clients of private banks proactively requesting for their holdings in this fund to be kept in their private banking account in order to keep their investments consolidated that led to private banks custodizing their clients' crypto asset holdings into their respective accounts. Urano Capital recently announced that it would launch an actively managed crypto fund with $10 million US dollars committed as starting capital. Moving on to China. Citibank, a US bank, has announced plans to withdraw their consumer business from nine APEC markets, including China and will only offer services to institutional clients, which includes private banking, cash management, investment banking, and trading functions, as reported by Capro Asia. In addition to the nine APAC markets, Citi is also withdrawing from retail banking in Europe, the Middle East, and South Asia, and will center its retail focus around London, the UAE, Hong Kong, and Singapore. Citi's CEO, Jan Fraser, noted that while the markets they are exiting have, quote, excellent businesses, end quote, they lacked the scale to compete, and that City's resources were better deployed in wealth management and institutional business in Asia. City will also combine its city gold and private banking arms, enabling City to cater to individuals who have wealth ranging from 1 million US dollars and up. Following this renewed focus on APAC wealth centers, City is aiming to be one of the top two wealth managers in the region in the next five years. In China, City was the first American bank to receive a custodian license for China's mutual fund market in September 2020, and the second foreign bank to receive one after Standard Chartered became the first in 2019. At the time of the announcement, Citi had 19 consumer banking branches operating across 12 cities in mainland China. Moving on, Following the politically charged derailing of its IPO and months of speculation as to its future, the path forward for Ant Financial may be starting to solidify, as reported by Bloomberg. With regulators cracking down on Ant Financial and the wider fintech and technology sector in China, the People's Bank of China has determined that it wants to, quote, prevent the disorderly expansion of capital, end quote, and ensure that Ant Group's financial business will be regulated under a single holding company. Ant Group currently has operations in asset management, lending, online payments, and insurance, along with other ventures such as its investment advisory joint venture with Vanguard. Its consumer lending business will be capped based on registered capital with two units which had 260 billion US dollars in outstanding loans between them being folded. The assets of UABAL. Which held 183 billion US dollars in assets at the end of 2020 must be reduced, and the expansion into payments, which processed 17 trillion US dollars in the 12 months to June 2020, will need to be curtailed. Whether or not there are downstream implications for asset and wealth managers, those that look to Ant Group to distribute their products, for example, remains to be seen. Next up, JP Morgan Asset Management the asset management arm of the U.S. bank, clinched the top spot in Broadridge's China Power Rankings an annual ranking of global asset managers in China, as reported by CityWire Asia. The 2021 rankings saw J.P. Morgan take the number one spot from UBS-AM, with the Swiss financial institution falling back to second place. BlackRock, Invesco, and Schroeder's remained unchanged in spots 3 through 5, and places 5 through 10, were all changed from the previous year's rankings. JP Morgan AM's doubling of assets under management and their partnership with China Merchants Bank for a wealth management arm saw them knock UBS off the number one spot. Broadridge's China Power Rankings assess foreign asset and wealth managers in China across six criteria. China Fund AUM, extent of business scope, local operational strength, brand perception, global investment strength, and China as a priority. These criteria are measured across the current, near-term, and long-term time horizons. Another report from Broadridge, the 10th Annual Fund Branch 50 Research Report, shows BlackRock, JP Morgan AM, and Fidelity taking the top three spots of the top 10 asset management brands for fund selectors in APAC, as reported by Ignite's Asia. This report draws on responses from over 50 fund selectors, including securities firms, private banks, local banks, and financial advisors across APAC markets, who answered questions across 10 brand drivers, such as brand recognition, product quality, and marketing and sales functions. Broadridge noted that large, cross-border firms tended to dominate the list, as size was the top factor for fund selectors across APAC, and this gave confidence to local investors. Similarly, firms like Allianz Global Investors and AXA Investment Management who ranked fifth and seventh, respectively, could leverage the confidence investors had in their parent institutions. Moving on, fund selector Asia reports that the PFM Woofie of Amundi, a French asset manager, has received authorization from Chinese regulators to launch its QDLP Woofie, along with receiving 300 million U.S. dollars in QDLP quota, having established its PFM Woofie in Beijing in November 2020. Amundi now joins Newberger Berman, Bailey Gifford, and Pimco as foreign firms who have received authorization to launch QDLP products, as noted in previous episodes, bringing a total of circa 46 QDLP products launched across 32 Woofies to China's market. Amundi also has a majority stake in a wealth management joint venture with Bank of China's wealth management arm. Though it remains unclear at this stage whether the qdlp product will be distributed through the wealth management joint venture over in cbdc's citywire asia reports that the people's bank of china has expanded its pilot digital B scheme increasing the geographic scope of where the pilot scheme is active and e-wallets are now allowed to make payments of up to 500 B, subject to a daily limit of 1000 renminbi and a monthly limit of 10,000 RMB. These e-wallets are controlled solely via a phone number, and the telecom operators are prohibited from sharing personal data of those using the e-wallets. This rollout follows the first successful business-to-business transaction back in March, and other cross-border initiatives involving the digital RMB feature Hong Kong and Thailand regulators. The next phase could involve Singapore, with the Lion City's MAS ongoing Project Ubin exploring the use of distributed ledger technology in cross-border payments, and comments made at a forum held in Chongqing last year by former People's Bank of China governor Zhou Xiaochuan, suggesting that China and Singapore focus on cross-border payments. Next up, Ignite's Asia reports that C-Trip, China's largest travel agency, has established a subsidiary in Shanghai to engage in fund sales, becoming the latest e-commerce player to dip its toe into China's fund distribution space. With a reported 50 million RMB in registered capital, securities investment distribution is stated as the unit's main business activity on its license, though it requires a license from the local regulator before it can commence these activities. And finally, Selector Asia reports that, continuing a trend from last month, New fund launches in China appear to be struggling to attract subscriptions during their IPO periods. Over the period March to 11 April, 66 equity funds extended their offering period, and three ETFs have extended theirs to more than 90 days. This follows from March, when no new funds completed their fundraising activities within a single day, compared to nearly 60 in January and February this year, as noted in a previous episode. Whilst current sentiment may be poor for new fund launches, the long-term prospect for mutual funds in China remains strong. With regards to mutual fund fees, Ignites Asia, citing data from the Ping'an Securities Fund Research Center, notes that China's 149 fund management companies derived 93.8 billion RMB in public fund management fees in 2020 up 48% from the public fund management fees earned by FMCs in 2019. Mixed asset funds led the way, with their management fees increasing by an average of 90%, and equity funds increased their fees by an average of 63%. This increase in fees was somewhat offset by increases in distribution charges, reflecting the increasing reliance of many fund management companies on independent third-party sales channels. Whilst distribution fees had decreased due to the prevalence of money market funds and their low distribution costs, the popularity of equity funds in the previous 2-3 to three years had reversed this trend, and fund management companies paid a total of 24.1 billion RMB in trailer commissions in 2020, up circa 3% from 2019 numbers. Recent blockbuster fund launches have also contributed to the growth in trailer fees, as distributors generally charge higher fees for new funds, and some of the larger fund management companies actively increase the fees they pay so that distributors are incentivized to sell their fund over others. Chinese regulators capped the trailer fee to 50% of a fund's management fee in August last year, but an industry analyst said it would do little to curb the bargaining power of China's largest FMCs. Currently, Only six fund management companies have their own independent distribution entities, and there are a limited number of digital advisory platforms to distribute their products on, though circa 80 firms are applying for the license. Whether distributors retain their distribution power in the face of changing industry dynamics remains to be seen. In the ESG and ETF space, at least four new ETFs focused on ESG themes are being prepared for launch in China adding to the 11 ESG-labeled funds and 102 ESG-linked funds currently in the market. This also follows the announcement of several carbon-neutral funds being prepared for launch, as highlighted in a previous episode. This trend towards ESG-centric funds is finding its way to China's wealth management industry, with Bank of China launching a carbon peak-themed wealth management product joining the wealth management arms of several other Chinese commercial banks and launching products in this space. As covered in earlier episodes, Goldman Sachs estimates China needs $16 trillion U.S. trillion to meet its carbon goals, so the industry can expect increased numbers of similar asset and wealth management product launches in the near future. So, that's it for the week of April 12 through 16. From our perspective, certainly the difference in expectations between investors across APAC and the UK with regards to ESG investments is very interesting, specifically that half of investors across China, Hong Kong, and Singapore believe that within three to five years, their investment portfolios will be 100% sustainable investments. For Singapore, it would be very interesting if they increased wealth taxes or put in a levy as a way to shore up their fiscal balance sheet as a result of COVID. Certainly it stands in contrast against the inflows they've been receiving lately, and they'd still be looking to capitalize on the potential unrest in Hong Kong. So it would be unlikely for this to happen, but we shall see in that regard. The future of Ant Group is perhaps the development with the most potential impact on the asset and wealth management space in China, and also especially for foreign asset and wealth managers. If the crackdown on them and other fintechs and technology firms really escalates into fund distribution, then many foreign and domestic operators in that market may be rethinking their distribution strategy. As covered, there are around 80 firms applying for a digital advisory platform on which to distribute products, so we'll see when they start coming to market what the impact will be with regards to the traditional fund distributors in China. Also quite interesting to see that Trip is now making a play to go into fund distribution and whether or not they'll be able to tie their travel business into a lucrative fund distribution side as well. So, those are our thoughts for this week. Let us know your thoughts in the comments below as to what you think the most interesting or relevant developments were, whether you agreed with ours, or if not, what you think we should have covered. If you enjoyed this episode, do give us a like, share and subscribe for future content. If you didn't enjoy this episode, thank you for sticking around this long, and let us know what content you would like covered. From Three Lions AWM Advisory, thank you for tuning in. We hope you join in next time.